jump into our series. We've already mentioned it a little bit. We're going through the biggest buts in the Bible. Last week, if you weren't here and you didn't get to join us, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses, verse 4. We really looked at a whole section of verses in Ephesians 2 that gives us my, probably my favorite but in the Bible. There's a lot of good ones, man. We've been joking about this for a long time. Every time we come to a but, we saw that that, that but is kind of like the uno reverse, right? Like life is going one way. Man, things are going one direction. The text is moving one way, and then that reverse gets dropped, and everything flips. Everything goes the opposite direction. And so in Ephesians, it tells us that we were dead in our sins and our transgressions. And then it says, verse 4, but because of his great love for us. You know, God has great love for you. Not, not mediocre love for you. Not, not decent love for you, right? Like, not okay love. Like, it's a K-love shout out. Didn't even mean that. Okay love, right? He's got great love for you. And not just for you, for us. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, more than enough mercy. He's not lacking in mercy. He has enough, we said, to spare and enough to share. He's rich in mercy. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. That's a big, beautiful but right there. That's an incredible statement that I was dead. I was, I was gone. I, I, I lived among sinners and I followed their ways. I was one of them. I was an enemy of God. But God had great love for me even when I was separate from him. What a statement. What a declaration. I love it. I'm so, so grateful for it. We presented this question last week that I want you to be wrestling with. Hopefully you wrestled with last week. Hopefully you'll continue to throughout the next few weeks. But what, what is your butt? What does that look like in your life? We talked about these famous kind of almost cliche Christian statements that I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was dead, but now I'm alive. That that is each of our testimonies. That each of us was something, but God came in and now I'm something else. I was addicted, but now I'm free. I was lonely, but now I have family. I was this, but God gave me this. I was broken, but now I'm whole. I was hurt, but now I'm healed. We could go on and on and on. So the question is, what's your but? In other words, what's your testimony? What's God done in your life? When did God step in for you and play that cosmic reverse card and say, no, you may be heading this direction, but I've got something greater for you. I've got something different for you. I've got hope and a future for you. What is your but? So we ask each of us to, to wrestle with those blanks and actually ask the question, I was blank, but now I'm blank. Carolyn's awesome. Give it up for Carolyn. Thank you. Looking out for me. I'm just, I'm just going to take advantage of that right now. Y'all just bear with me for a second. Thank you, Carolyn. Oh, man, it's amazing the power of water, isn't it? We're going to talk about some water today. Some of y'all already turned to Genesis 6. You know where we're going. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I was blank, but now I'm blank. That's the idea of the gospel. That's what this is really all about, is before Jesus stepped in, we were all doomed. We were all destined to eternal separation from God, but he loved us. He had great love for us, and so he sent his son 
for us. So today in part two, what I want to do, I want to title my message, But First. I don't know if there's any Big Brother fans in our church besides, I know, Parker Neal. Shout out to Parker. We always talk to Parker about Big Brother. So uh, if you are too good to watch reality TV, I understand. I used to be like you, but... Uh, I'm not anymore. Uh, I have deteriorated, uh, and I enjoy Big Brother. And so this is the statement they always make at the beginning of each episode. They'll say, this is coming up, and we're going to do this, and then there's this transition. But first. So I want to share with you the first big but in the Bible today. The first one that really pops. The first one where, where God steps in with this three-little word and changes everything. He flips some things around, and we're going to read today the story of Noah's Ark. Now, the danger with a story like this is all of us in this room have probably heard this since we were kids, right? In fact, last night I read the story of Noah's Ark to my kids, and uh, they had questions about it, and I told them things that weren't in the storybook, and Lexi looks at me, and she goes, how do you know so much about this? Do you read the Bible? Uh, I have, yes, baby girl. Uh, I, have, I have read this story uh, more than once, in fact. Uh, but it's amazing with some of these old stories, these things that, that we have created into children's stories, which I love that they're presented as children's stories, but sometimes we dumb them down and we think they're just children's stories. And there's some depth in here, there's some power in here, there's some truth in here that if we're not careful, we think we've graduated from and the reality is we miss out on it. So today, I want to encourage you to to come to this story with me with fresh eyes, to approach this story that you could probably get up here and tell fairly competently without looking at scripture, without needing any notes, without even any preparation time. You could probably sum this up pretty well. But, but maybe there's something there that you've missed. Maybe there's something there that I've missed. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 6 in verse 9. And we're going to see what all we remember. Because just because we've heard the story doesn't mean we always remember everything in the story. It also doesn't mean we've always heard the story correctly. So let's get into all of it. It says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. What an epitaph. What a statement. This is the Holy Spirit inspiring these words to be written. Can you imagine God saying this about you? He said, Noah was a righteous man, that he was blameless among the people of his time, that he transcended his generation, that his generation had issues, and we're going to see some deep issues in Noah's generation, and yet Noah still stood out. It says he walked faithfully with God. Verse 10, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Noah had a lot of things going for him. Naming his kids was not one of his strong suits, right? Like, this wasn't, this wasn't his strength. He did a lot of things really well. We're going to give him a mulligan on not knowing how to name his kids. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. We don't know all the details of what was happening on planet Earth at this time, but we can imagine it was extremely bad. So, so bad, in fact, that God couldn't find any righteous people outside of Noah and his family. And so imagine America with eight Christians. 
Imagine a world with just eight people following Jesus and everyone else is, is fully indulging their, their sinful nature, their carnal desires, engaged in sin and wickedness and violence. Verse 12 says that God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. The enemy excels at, at corruption, at perversion. You see, the enemy is not creative. He can't start anything new. All he can do is take that which God has done and which God has created and mess it up and pervert it and twist it and corrupt it. And so at this point in time, Satan's winning, right? Like, you got all these people over here. Now, we don't know exactly what the population was on planet Earth at this point in time. It obviously wasn't the 7 billion that it is right now. It was a smaller population. But there was a whole lot of people who were living in complete wickedness and corruption. Verse 13. So God said to Noah. They had a relationship. They had spoken before. And God has this conversation with Noah. He says, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy them and the earth. I don't know how bad earth had to be to bring God to this point. But I know I serve a God who is patient. I serve a God who is abounding in mercy and in grace. And so it's very hard to fathom a point where God just says, I can't do it anymore. Where, where people are so destructive and so harmful to one another, where God says, I can't let you continue to damage those that I've created in my own image. I've got to step in and hit a reset button here. I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make for yourself, verse 14, an ark, right? We all know about the ark. We Maybe sang songs about the ark. Build it out of gopher barky, barky, right? If you grew up in my generation, some of you got that reference, and many of you are like, what just happened? Uh, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to understand me. Uh, so make yourself an ark that says here of cypress wood. There's actually a footnote in the text. They don't know what kind of wood was used. The word that, that is translated sometimes gopher wood. It's translated here cypress wood. It's a Hebrew word that has been lost to time. And so they don't know what kind of wood. So they're, they're guessing more than anything. Uh, the, the best translation would probably just be go make yourself an ark of wood because we know that was what was done. Uh, but they're trying to contextually say here's where he lived. Here's what kind of plants were around. Here's what probably could have been used at this point in time. So we don't know what kind of wood it was. That's not extremely important. Uh, but it just if you're like me and you know the song it messes you up when you hear it wasn't gopher bark uh so we got to address that elephant uh there will be an elephant in the ark too but that's later on make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out so god gives him directions he says go build a boat a massive boat a huge boat a boat that's going to be a savior now we know with new testament understanding the ark is a representation of jesus in the same way that, that Jesus came and was nailed to wood, and because he was nailed to that wood, he is the one who rescues us, who carries us through these storms of life into the next life. He's the one who takes us from the corruption and destruction of earth to a new place, a better place, a new covenant with God. So the ark is, is a physical reality. This really happened, 
And yet it's also a symbol of the one who would come and save us. Verse 15, God doesn't just tell him to build the ark. He tells him how to build the ark. Aren't you glad we serve a God who gives some details and some instructions? He says, this is how you are to build the ark. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. And we could have a massive Bible scholar debate about how big a cubit is, but we're not going to get into that today. There's all kinds of discussions about this. There's, there's many theories. Uh, verse 16, make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around, put it door in the side of the ark, make lower, middle, and upper decks. So we know there was three decks on the ark. We know that there was a roof. There was an opening for a door. Uh, Verse 17, he says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. Now, key word here is on earth. When he's saying on earth, he doesn't mean on planet earth. He means on land. Everything that's actually on the land because there were animals in the water that are going to survive this. They didn't have to come on the ark. It simplified things. So just just to address that. Uh, Verse 17, for 40 days... The flood kept coming. Oh, excuse me. How do we skip down to verse chapter 7? I'm moving too fast here. All right. So he says everything on earth will perish. So we're going to fast forward in the story. We know what happens, right? He goes out and he collects the animals. God says, hey, bring all the animals onto the ark. Uh, He spends 120 years. 120 years. I'm 41 and I feel old and that's a third of 120 years, right? Like that's unfathomable how long it takes to build the ark. But it takes so long to build the ark because he's not just building the ark. He's also warning the world. If we're not careful, we read a story about God's wrath and God's judgment, his flood coming to the earth to destroy the earth. And we can think, man, God is... God's cruel. God's hateful. God's God's dangerous. God gave them 120 years of warning. And he didn't just give them one warning. He kept sending Noah out to make sure everyone had heard. Everyone had the opportunity to respond. Everybody knew what was coming. This is the grace of our God. By the way, when you tell somebody about Jesus... You are an extension of God's grace into that person's life. Whether they respond or not, whether they choose Jesus or not, that's not my choice. That's not your choice. My job is simply to tell them, is to proclaim the truth. Noah went out day after day for 120 of what had to be the hardest, most depressing, most discouraging, most self-questioning years anyone ever lived. Can you imagine spending 120 years to spread a message that no one received? Nobody. I get discouraged when we have a Sunday and nobody chooses Jesus, right? Like 120 years. He faithfully proclaims the truth. I can't imagine the the questions, the doubt that Noah wrestled with. Get 100 years. Did God really say that? Did I imagine this? Did I make all this out right when you've been called a a fool and an idiot and crazy for a hundred years? You probably start to believe it. Yet Noah clung to the truth of what God had said to him. 
He finished the project. He saw it to completion. And God sent the rain. Chapter 7. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. As the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. One thing you'll discover if you read through the story uh, is... And maybe you know this, maybe you remember this. I didn't remember this. I always think of it being rain, and obviously there was a lot of rain, but it wasn't just rain. The earth actually opened up, and all the water below the earth, all the springs came out and came up as well. And so God fired every bullet in the gun. God grabbed every ounce of H2O that was available and brought it out to bring this cleansing, this destruction. Now, we know that the, the flood is also a, a, a symbol of baptism. Right, That they went into the ark and they came out of the ark saved as they went into the water. So there's, there's a lot of symbolism going on here. There's a lot of things God did to foreshadow what was to come. Verse 19, they rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. Every mountain. We, we got to go out west this summer and see some high mountains, see some 14,000-foot mountains that are covered in snow and these beautiful, gorgeous sights. And that's not even anything compared to other parts of the world where they got 29,000-foot mountains, right? They're twice as tall as what we saw, all of it, covered in water. Verse 20, the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. So again, we don't know how long a cubit is, how big a cubit is, but we know, man, this water didn't just get to the top. It went above. This is the way that God works, right? Like he feeds 5,000, there's 12 basketfuls left over. He floods the earth, and he gives more than enough. He is a God of abundance. He's the God who is rich. He is not lacking, and so he gives more than enough water to cover it all. 21. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swam over the earth, and all mankind. It's a heavy statement. You can't imagine how heartbroken our God was for having created humanity in his image and seen them so perverted, so corrupted. So rebellious that he had no choice but to hit his cosmic reset button and say, let's try it again. Verse 22, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground. The birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. If you're not familiar, it's Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, eight people total. Verse 24, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So the rain came down for 40 days, but the waters covered the earth for 150 days. Can you imagine being stuck in a boat with seven other people for 150 days? Now can you imagine being stuck in a boat with 150 people and two of every creature that lives upon the earth? Can you imagine what it smelled like on that boat? Can you imagine the noise on that boat? Can you imagine trying to get a night's sleep uh, on a boat full of every creature? Like, this was not Carnival Cruise, right? This was not, this was not a celebration out on the high seas. This was probably 
difficult, and yet they knew that God was with them. They knew that God was for them. They knew that there was a purpose in what they were doing. But I wonder at what point they started to say, when is this water going to go away? When do we get to get off of this boat? We spent 41 days on a road trip this summer, and it was probably about seven days too many. Uh, And we got to get out of the car. We got to go in hotels. We got to experience a lot of things. I can't imagine 150 days locked in a boat with no land anywhere, not even in sight. It's not like you could look out the window and see some beautiful land form. You looked out the window, and it was just water as far as you could see. I wonder what kind of questions Noah and his family started to have in that moment. God, you've been quiet. God, you've been silent. God, you saved us. You rescued us. But now what? Right? We, we can look fast forward to the children of Israel as they get rescued out of slavery in Egypt. It doesn't take very long for them to begin to question what God is doing even after he saved them, even after they've watched their enemies flooded in the Red Sea. It doesn't take very long for them to say, man, we had it better back there. I wonder if Noah and his family were like, man, we had it better in a world full of corrupt people. Violent people, a world full of people who mocked us and treated us as outcasts because we heard from God and we tried to protect them. We tried to spare them. We shared the truth with them and no one would respond. I wonder what kind of questions start popping up in the ark. And then we get to chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8 says this. It says, but God remembered. Everyone say that with me this morning. But God remembered. Aren't you glad we got a God who remembers? He didn't forget his people in the ark. He didn't forget his plan for their life. He didn't forget his purpose for what he was up to. He didn't forget his promise to them. God remembered. It says, but God remembered Noah. He didn't just remember Noah. He remembered all the wild animals, all the livestock that were in there with them in the ark And God sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. You can read through chapter 8 and see what else happens as the waters begin to recede. And we got this cool story with a a raven that goes out, and then a dove that goes out. And there's an olive branch that's brought back, which is pretty cool for us as people of the olive branch, right? Like, it's it's an awesome story that we're familiar with. And I I encourage you to read it because there's some cool stuff in there. But I want to tell you today, but God remembers. He remembers. I don't know what situation you're in, what season you're in, where it may feel like God is distant. It may seem like God is silent. It may seem like God has made promises that he has not delivered on yet. But I need you to know we serve a God who remembers. We serve a God who not only doesn't forget, he can't forget. You ever forgotten something important? An appointment, a commitment, birthday. a birthday, <laughs> anniversary, right? It's got to be the dude saying the birthday. I don't know what it is about dudes and us forgetting birthdays and important dates. Um, it's, it's not our strong suit, ladies. Like, just lower your expectations a little. Help us out. Uh, We are good at forgetting, aren't we? You ever had somebody forget something that they committed to you? 
forget your birthday, your anniversary, that time they were supposed to be there, ever had somebody just stand you up, and then you find out, man, I just straight up forgot. Just didn't even know I was supposed to be there. I'm sorry, I forgot. We are really good at forgetting. Even those of us who are fairly intelligent, we are incredibly capable of forgetting, and yet we serve a God who never forgets. I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is we judge God often through the lens of people that we know and other relationships, and we think that God is going to treat us and do the same things that other people have, and so other people have let us down. Other people have forgotten, but we have a God who never forgets. We have a God who remembers. I think we could write down a few things with this, but God remembers phrase. We could simply say, people forget, but God remembers. People forget all the time. We could say that life hurts, but God remembers. Maybe you're in a season right now of hurt, of pain. I need you to know God remembers. He remembers his call on your life. He remembers his future for you. He remembers his plan for you. He wasn't caught off guard by this season that came, by this abuse that some other person brought into your life or this mistake that you brought into your life. None of that derailed his plan. He remembers who you are, and he remembers where he's going to take you. The problem isn't that God forgets, it's that we forget. We forget who we are. We forget God's plan. We forget God's promise. We forget what God is up to. But God remembers. We could say it this way. God waits. But God remembers. It's not my favorite characteristic of God, if I'm going to be honest. He's patient. I'm not. He lets processes play out. He allows time for things to transpire. I want God to move right now. And sometimes God says... I'll get to it. He has an appointed time, a set time, a perfect time. And oftentimes we are uncomfortable with the wait. Dwindle referenced it this morning. Dwindle didn't even know what I was talking about today. And yet he, he said, man, I, sometimes I don't like that God takes so long to get some stuff done, but he always gets done, right? He always keeps his promise. God waits, but God remembers. I don't know what he's waiting for in your life today. But just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it's not going to. Just because you haven't seen it yet doesn't mean it's not on the way. Doesn't mean he has forgotten. Doesn't mean he has moved on. Doesn't mean God has chosen plan B and said, you know what? I've deemed you unworthy of that thing I told you you were going to have. God waits. But God remembers. I want to show you today three things that God remembers. I want to encourage you with this so you can grab a hold of this and stand on this. Three things that God remembers. Many times I'll remember something or hope to remember something. I'm like, man, I should write this thing down. Uh, and I don't. Or I do and then I forget where I wrote it down. I'll put an alarm in the phone uh, and then I'll turn the alarm off because I'm doing something else and not even realize what the alarm was for. Like, I, I can be really stupid. Okay, can I just be honest? Like, I, sometimes I look at myself, I'm like, I'm too smart to be this dumb. You know what I'm saying, right? It's not the God that we serve. He doesn't have to set alarms. 
He doesn't need to ask somebody to remind him. He doesn't need something to bring it up for him. He doesn't have to have a digital kingdom. Uh, He doesn't have an an angel who's keeping the calendar and coming and saying, hey, God, don't forget, right? That's not the God that we serve. You see, God's remembrance is a characteristic of his omniscience. Omniscience means that he is all-knowing. There is nothing he does not know, nothing he's unaware of, nothing he's surprised about, nothing he's forgotten unless he chooses to forget. By the way, he does choose to forget my sin. It's the one thing he forgets. But he doesn't forget. He just chooses not to remember. What are some things that God does remember? What does he choose to remember? I want to share three with you this morning. These are certainly not all of the things he remembers, but three things you need to know. Number one, God remembers his people. He remembers his people. He has not forgotten you. He knows your name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows how fast those numbers are declining, right? God remembers what is going on in your life. He remembers you. He remembers his people. We used to sing that song, your grace is enough. So remember your people. Remember your children. Remember your promise. Oh, God, guess what? He does. He does. We celebrate it. We worship him because he remembers, but he remembers his people. He has not forgotten you. He hasn't. Genesis 8.1 says it this way. It said, but God remembered Noah. I think you just put your name in there this morning. But God remembered Pam. But God remembered Corey. But God remembered Kathy. And you can insert your name right there. God remembered. Remember, what is God remembering Noah? Why is it important for this to be said? Because 150 days on a boat with full of animals and seven other people who are probably getting a little bit cranky and a little bit worn out on this boat, they needed to know that God had not forgotten them. God didn't bring them onto the boat to leave them on the boat. He brought them on the boat to see them through the storm, to bring them to a place where he could give them a new paradise, a new covenant, a new beginning, where he had a fresh start in store for his people because God always remembers his people. It's amazing how much has already been said today between, I think, Dwindle and, and Pastor Braden and, and even our worship set that we, we chose weeks ago before we knew what we'd be teaching on. Today, God lined this up. God set things up. But God doesn't forget his people. You may be lonely today. You may be hurting today. You may be in a season that seems dry a season that, that, that seems scary, a season that seems distant. And you may be wondering, God, you, you promised God, I I felt in my heart that you said I was going to have a spouse, and I'm not married. I want you to know God remembers. Maybe, Maybe you felt like God said you would have children, and you've dealt with infertility. You haven't had the chance yet to adopt. Those doors haven't yet opened. I need you to know that God remembers. 
Maybe you felt like God had a call on your life, a purpose for you. He was going to use you in a specific way, in a specific type of ministry. He was going to open up specific doors, and it seems like it just isn't happening. We serve a God who remembers time and time and time again in Scripture. We come across people who it took years or decades for God's promise to be delivered, but once it finally was, it made sense through the waiting. They saw the plan unfail. I need you to know God remembers his people. He remembers. He doesn't just remember his people, though. Secondly, God remembers his plan. He remembers his plan. Let's fast forward in the story into Genesis chapter 9. It says, then God blessed Noah and his sons. This is after they've gotten off the ark. He blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Did you know, because I did not, did you know that the first command God gave Noah and his family when they got off the ark was the same first command that he gave Adam and Eve? I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's coincidental. I think God was affirming, I haven't given up on humanity. I haven't given up on people. I still have a plan for redemption. I still have a plan to Son and Savior. I don't care how corrupt it's got, how perverse it's got, how wicked it's got, how evil it's got. My plan has not stopped and it will not stop. And so the minute they get out of the boat, God reaffirms for them. He says, basically, we're, you're, you're the new Adam and Eve. We're starting over all over again. We're all related to Noah and his family. I don't know if you're Shem or Ham or Japheth, right? I don't know which horrible name you came from, but you came from one of them. And so did I. He says, we're going to hit the reset button and we're going to reaffirm the same command I gave at the very beginning. I don't think that's accidental, y'all. I think there's some depth in there. I think there's some meaning in there. In fact, God was so serious about this, he has a little conversation with him, spends the next five verses talking to him, and then he just repeats himself, not because he forgot, because he knew that they can forget. When God repeats himself, it's not that God's on, on repeat. It's not that God's getting a little old and he doesn't remember he told you that story before, right? God repeats himself because he knows we forget. And so six verses later, he says it again. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. God remembers his plan. He had a plan for you from before you were formed in your mother's womb. And yes, there may have been some mistakes. Yes, you may have chosen some things that were not part of his plan. You may have embraced some things that didn't look like him. But that doesn't cancel the plan. Earth went sideways. People went perverse and corrupt. We did everything contrary to God's plan, but God's plan didn't change. I am not strong enough to invalidate God's plan in my life, and neither are you. Okay, his plan is still his plan. Now, that doesn't mean that, that you're going to receive everything he has for you. you got to choose that. But just because you made a mistake, just because you went on a, on a season uh, of, of rebellion or of sinfulness or of laziness or complacency or discouragement or whatever you've gone through, that doesn't change the plan God has. You know the verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. I don't even use it very often because it's cliche and it's overdone and half the time it's used out of context. The context here is they were getting ready to go into, into exile. 
They were being sent away from Jerusalem. They were being punished, but in the midst of their punishment, in the midst of, of God saying, I need to get your attention, he reaffirms, I know the plans I have for you, and my plans for you are good. They're plans to prosper you. They're plans to not harm you. They needed to know his plan wasn't to harm them because it felt like his plan was to harm them. Somebody today, it may feel like God's harming you right now. It might feel like life is coming against you and God is against you, but I need to know that, need you to know He's for you and His plans are for you, His purpose is for you, His promises are for you, His Son is for you, His Spirit is for you, His heart is for you, His face is for you, He's for you. He says, I got plans. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And he told them this as they were going into the darkest season of their lives. God forbid somebody here today is in the darkest season of your life. If you are, I want you to know God's plans are for you. He wants to prosper you. He wants to bless you. His heart for you is not to harm you. It's to bring you into a place where you're positioned for all he needs to do in your life. God remembers his people, and he remembers his plan. Praise God. Thirdly, God remembers his promise. He remembers his promise moving forward in the story in Genesis chapter 9. It says, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I have now established my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that come out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. This is the second time we see God create a covenant. First time was Adam and Eve. We see a number of other covenants that God makes with man, bringing us up to the point of Jesus and the new covenant that you and I get to be in, the best covenant, the greatest covenant, the biggest covenant. He makes a covenant with Noah. Well, here's what I didn't know. He didn't just make a covenant with Noah. You know, God made a covenant with animals. You ever seen that? I, I didn't know. I'm a pastor. I should know. I didn't know. I read right past that a million times. God made a covenant with the animals. God made a promise to them, I'll never do this to you again. I'll never put you through another 150 days on a boat with eight crazy people. I promise I won't do that to you, right? Like God made a covenant with the creatures. How good is our God? They weren't made in his image. They don't have an eternal spirit. Like, but, but, but he still recognized their pain and their suffering and what they went through. And God says, I want you to know I'm for you and I'm not against you. He made a promise to the animals. I just think that's cool. Verse 11. I established my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Never again. By the way, he's kept that promise. There have been areas destroyed by flood. There have been sections that have seen flooding and damage. And obviously us living on the Mississippi River, we've seen some and experienced some down through the years. But God's never allowed another flood to come like that flood. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant. 
I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. He again brings the animals into the covenant. A covenant for all generations to come. Here's what's cool about the covenants God makes. God's covenants always get greater with time, but he doesn't cancel out the previous covenants. Just because we're not under, we're under the Jesus covenant, not the Noah covenant. God says, I'm still going to apply the Noah covenant to you. For all generations to come, that's us. Verse 13, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Of all the amazing things we saw on our trip this summer as we traveled the west and visited national parks and these famous sites, perhaps the, the coolest thing we saw was on our last day of sightseeing as we actually left the pretty parts of the country and entered into like the, the very northeastern tip of New Mexico and the Texas panhandle, we saw this amazing double rainbow that stretched across the entirety of the sky. And I don't have any good pictures of it because by this point in time, our windshield was trashed and we had bugs from like 14 different states on our windshield. Uh, and so we tried to take some pics out the windshield and they just looked terrible. So I can't really share it with you. But if you were there, I promise, man, a double rainbow, vibrant. We saw from end to end, both of them. I've never seen that before. What is that? That's a sign of the covenant that we have with God, that he'll never flood the earth again. Verse 14, he says, whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember. You see, the rainbow is a reminder for the one who doesn't need a reminder. But he puts it there so we know that he remembers. So we know that he hasn't forgotten, that he's following through with his promise, with his covenant. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember. I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. He remembers. Now here's a danger for us in this generation. Because the enemy is not creative... And all he can do is corrupt and pervert. He's taken a sign of God's covenant with us, of God's promise to us, of God's goodness to us, and turned it into a sign of something else. And please don't misunderstand me. I love people who live a lifestyle that's contrary to the word of God. We love gay people, we love homosexuals, we love bisexuals and lesbians and, and insert whatever other rainbow that they apply. Alphabet soup, right? Like we, we love them, God loves them. They are created in God's image. And so we're not here to hate, we're not here to put people down, we're not here to attack people. But if we're not careful, we'll let that be what the rainbow is and forget The rainbow is a sign of the covenant of God. It's a sign that God remembers his people. And God remembers his plan. And God remembers his promise. And next time you see a rainbow, whether it happens to be an actual rainbow in nature or a rainbow flag or another corporation that has decided to show off how inclusive they are, remember. Be reminded. Here's what I think. I think when God sees those things, 
God doesn't lower his expectations and himself to our generation. So I don't think God sees a rainbow flag flying and gets angry or upset. I think God says, that's right, I'm not destroying the earth with a flood. I think God transcends our generation. I think God rises above the the corruption and the perversion in our generation, just as he did back then, even in the midst of their corruption and their perversion. God remembered his plan. God remembered his promise. He remembered his command. He said, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. By the way, that's a piece of why the enemy tries to attack insexuality so much, because he knows the first command that God gave, and he's going to do everything he can to prevent it from being fulfilled. Who's, who's the enemy hate? He hates God, but what's he hate more than anything else? The people made in God's image. So if he can't keep us from receiving Jesus, his next goal is just to keep him from being born, to keep people from existing altogether. And that's why the, the two biggest cultural battles we see are sexuality and abortion. Because they both have one thing in common. The enemy doesn't want God's command to be fulfilled. The enemy doesn't want it to be lived out. He is after it. And that doesn't mean that, that people who side on a different side are our enemies or we get angry at them. Remember it's that flesh and blood is not the problem. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, right? we got to keep our eyes on where the problem is. The enemy, Satan's the problem, okay? The demonic forces are the problem. So please understand, I'm not saying this so that we can go out and bash everybody who, who's had an abortion or everybody who flies a rainbow flag. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that stuff's not of God. It's not the way he designed it. And what it is is it's an attack of an enemy who's come against it to try to prevent us from living out what God's given our purpose to be. And he's pretty good at it. He's being kind of successful right now. So what do we do? We remember that God remembers We get reminded today, God has not forgotten his people. He's not overlooked this generation. He hasn't just said, you know what, I'm tapping out. I'm going to give it over to Satan. He can do whatever he wants. God is at work in our generation. When the sin abounds, his grace much more abounds. He's up to something for us because he remembers. He remembers his people. He remembers his plans. He remembers his promise. Would you pray?